0: So let me invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 John 2, 15-17, and it's also up on the screens. We're going to look at 1 John 2, verses 15-17. through 17. Let me pray for us, and then we'll listen to God's Word. Lord, we, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts with this Word, God, that we would be changed by it. We don't want to just uh, take it in, but we want to live it out. So Lord, would you just keep us attentive this morning as we think about what you would have for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth, O oh God. Take a look at this picture up on the screen. Anybody recognize that guy? That's uh, that's Ron. Our test. And when it comes to basketball, Ron was was one of the the greatest defenders ever to play the game. In fact, in 2004, he was named Defender of the Year in the NBA, and by 2010, he led the LA Lakers to win the national championships. Artest played all over the league. He even ended up playing on the NBA All-Star team. He was a talented man. But if you set all of that aside, Ron Artest is most well-known for the greatest brawl in NBA history. They called it the malice at the palace. Anybody remember that? It was a good time. Here's what went down. 2004. The the Pacers and the Pistons have 45 seconds left in the game. And the Pacers clearly had the win. This was no contest anymore. But with 45 seconds left to go, Artest intentionally slapped Ben Wallace from the Pistons as he went in for a layup. And this fight then broke out on the court among the two teams. Well, just about the times the refs got things under control, a fan threw his drink from the crowd in the direction of the brawl. And then things got crazy. Um, Artest saw this and charged up into the crowd looking for his attacker. But in his rage, he mistook an innocent bystander and punched him in the face instead. An all-out riot ensues, and here's the aftermath. Ten people are charged with assault, $11 million in suspensions, hundreds of hours of community service, and a new security protocol that would permanently keep the players and the fans apart. You'll remember the irony later when Artest changed his name to Meta World Peace. <laughs> but even with his name, this, this relationship with the NBA was never the same. And thinking back on that story, I got, I got to thinking, some things in life just don't go together, Right? They should never be mixed with one another. They were never meant for each other. When basketball players fight it out, that's one thing. But when the crowd joins in, as they say, that's a whole other ball game. But it's not just fans and basketball. Just let me give you a couple of other things to consider for a minute. Um, Orange juice and toothpaste. Anybody with me? Those two things don't mix together. Ben and Jerry's made an ice cream a while back like that, and that's messed up. How about bleach and ammonia? That's not going to end well. Forks and power outlets. Good, I was thinking maybe that was just me. Here's a PSA. How about alcohol and life decisions? No, and here's why I get us thinking about that Um, God's word is all about this theme this morning. It's clear that when it comes to our faith, there are certain things that don't mix. Last week, we learned that Jesus is the light, and if we're going to follow the light, we have to understand that the the light and the darkness don't get along. That the light shines over the darkness, the darkness is overcome by it. You cannot follow Christ and hang out in the dark. Those two things don't mix. But this morning, John takes this idea one step further. He says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love the world and the Father at the same time. That's a horrible mix. I remember my first year in college. My roommate and I were getting tired of dorm food, so we decided we were going to have chicken fajita night. We went into the dorm kitchen. We fired up a hot pan of oil, and my grandpa had taught me early on, if you just put a drop of water in the pan, when it sizzles, it's ready. So like a genius, I take a cup of water, and I poured that right into that 500-degree pan, and that was the biggest mess I have ever created in the kitchen. I don't know how I ended up unscathed. But there are some things that don't mix. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning walking through this scripture lesson. We're going to look at it one verse at a time because here's the challenge. The holiday season is loaded with temptations to mix the things of God with the things of this world. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, if he's going to start bashing Santa, I'm out of here. Let me assure you, this is not about Jesus and Santa It's about so much more than that. So let me just break this down. Look at verse 15 on your screens. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Last week, if you were with us, we came away with a a simple lesson to love one another. We were called towards this idea of radical and premeditated love. To walk in the light of Christ is to love each other. But this week, it seems like we're almost called away from love. Do not love the world. And this command, even its original language, it shows up in something called the present imperative tense. And here's what that means. This is a call to action. It's an imperative. To love the world is to leave the Father. Do not love this world. And in just three verses, God's word talks about the world six times. The Greek word that John uses is cosmos. Think cosmos in the sky. In First John, that can mean two things. It can mean the created order, the world and all the universe within, or it can mean the world that we live in as in humanity in its fallen state. And it's really clear John's referring to the latter this morning. Here's how we know. If you fast forward to 1 John 5.19, he lays it out perfectly. Look at this on the screens. We know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do not love this world. But, you know, if you really think about that command, that presents an enormous question. Because one of the most well-loved, famous pieces of Scripture that drives all the purpose of the church and all of Christendom says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So how is it that God loves the world, but now for those who love the Father, we're taught to do the opposite? N.T. rightly lays out a case study for this. I'm going to meander for a minute, so hang with me. He says, imagine an animal that you'd be really afraid of. Let's, let's say uh, an angry rhinoceros. And if you came around a corner and you found yourself face to face with this, this terrifying, raging animal, would you love on it or run away? You can answer. Run. Yeah, you'd tuck tail and peace out. But, but let's take this one step further. Let's say you come across the corner and that same animal is in sinking sand. Would you not do all you could do to save him? So you think the rhino's kind of like this world. God's love causes him to send his son to save the sinner, to save the rhino in the sinking sand. That's who God is. That's what we're called to be about. And yet in many cases, that's not the cause that we fall in love with. See, because as Christians... Our temptation is not to run from sin, but to join in. Not to save the rhino, but to be a, a part of the sinking sand. First John says to fall in love with that is to fall in love with something completely different. To love the world as God loves the world is to bring the truth of his gospel, but to love the world in its worldliness is to love our own destruction. If we're going to be led... If we're going to lead the lost to the one who can get them out of the sandpit, we've got to quit playing in the sand. Love this, not that. And then here's where things get even more complex. Look at this in verse 16 up on your screens. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And now things are beginning to materialize. We, we can begin to grab onto this concept. This isn't about loving the people of the world. Of course we're called to that. This is about loving the things of the world. And if you're going to love the Father, those things will never mix. John boils it down to three cautions. You might say three security protocols to keep us out of the malice at the palace. To love God is to leave behind the desires of our flesh first, the lust of our eyes, and the prideful life that we live. So let's look a bit deeper at these, uh, these three instructions. First, beware of the desires of your flesh. And I don't know about you, but the, the hardest part for me about the holiday season, hands down, is this word called gluttony. Anybody with me? I mean, you name it, the holidays are packed with, with food everywhere you turn. Scientists say on average, an American will consume 3,000 calories on Thanksgiving Day alone. You add in drinks and dessert to that, and by the end of the day, by the end of those three hours of a meal, they say it will take in 4,500 calories. Soak that up for a minute. And we tell ourselves it's not just one, it's just, it's just one meal, right? And, and yet the food train, if you think about it, just keeps coming. Thanksgiving leftovers, and then Christmas Eve, and Christmas Day, and New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day, and it just, the fridge is packed with food. And I guess I pick on gluttony because it's relevant. That's what our flesh desires this time of year. Too much food, too much drink. But this passage refers to all the lusts of the flesh. And if you think of that, we live in a world that has normalized the desires of our flesh. Greed, pride, money, violence, sex, nudity, That all comes standard on your Netflix account. No need to pay extra. And the scriptures teach us that this desire from your flesh, it's not a desire that comes from the Father. That's a craving that's been enticed by the world. A life that's overcome and controlled by the senses is a life that's left the Lordship of Christ behind. You cannot love the things of this world and love the Father and here's where it all begins. Our lesson says, second, that this obsession often comes from the desires of our eyes. You know, it's no secret. We're, we're a visual people, right? Images have power. They can even control us. Tony Ranke just released a new book recently titled, The Twelve Ways That Your Cell Phone Is Changing You. And in his book, he talks about how this distraction of technology is now like quite literally an extension of us. And because of that seamless relationship, we forget that over time, what we see is changing who we are. Just consider all that our eyes see, even just this time of year, and let's just consider through our phones for a minute. Already we're being hit with images and advertisements and marketing campaigns that are happy to tell us exactly what Christmas should look like. We don't have to wonder about whether we have it all together, the world has already told us we're inadequate. We looked on our phones and we see this deception of perfection and then we look around our own lives and we we see this scene that's something entirely different. So we go back to our phones to escape it. And we click and we scroll and we swipe and we like and we share and it's almost as if the more that we connect with our phones, the less we have to face the reality of ourselves. And here's the best part. If your eyes see something you want, all you have to do is click. Click. The scripture isn't about the evils of technology, though. In fact, I actually think technology itself is is neutral. I use my phone for worship planning. I use my phone for Bible reading, for family photos, for good things. The issue isn't our phone. The the issue is the desires of our eyes and the love affair that we have with this world when the first love we were supposed to have was with him. Essenia O'Neill was a 19-year-old Australian model. She built up a successful career in just one year as an Instagram influencer. She had over 500,000 followers. She was all set. She had all the likes and shares a girl that age could want. She was pursued for online endorsement deals. The, The masses would tell her how beautiful she was. The money was flowing like crazy. And then out of nowhere, she deleted everything. All of her photos overnight gone. Her livelihood was completely wiped out. Everyone assumed the worst. Were, was she kidnapped? Is she alive? A few days later, this is what she said in an online interview. Look at this, uh, this quote up on the screen. Oversexualization, perfect food photos, tr- perfect travel vlogs. It's a textbook, she said, of how I got famous. But my phone eventually consumed me. I spent ages 12 to 16 wishing I was someone else. I spent 16 to 19 modeling myself and promoting the best parts of my life, and I faked it. I quit because I no longer want to compare my life with someone else's edited highlights. She said, I'm over the celebrity culture and its obsession. It's silly, it's lonely, and it's fake. You know, Nisenia might be on to something because here's how Jesus says it. Look at this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, good deal. If your eye is bad, your body's full of darkness. And so if what we see all day is made up, plastic, a Pinterest perfect picture of life, then of course we're going to feel anxious and lonely and depressed with the authentic life that God's given us. It's like those commercials for fast food. You ever seen those like Burger King where the burger's dropping from the sky and landing on itself? You with me? Nobody's ever seen those before? It's just me and my gluttony. No, but if you know that burger's propped up, right? They use shoe polish to make the patty look good. Or if you go to McDonald's and you, you look at their ads on, uh, on pancakes, as they're, they're pouring out the syrup, you know that's motor oil, right? <laughs> Nobody's eaten that pancake after that promo's over. See, but what we see, if we're not careful, it'll eventually be what we fall in love with. And here's the thing to fall in love with the things of this world is to love, Scripture says, what's already passing away. It's a chasing after the wind. I think what we were really meant for, what we were really meant to fall in love with, was Him. And yet we cling after these things in place of Him. You know, from the very beginning of time, long before there were smartphones, this was the problem. Adam and Eve had it all. They were uh, walking in the garden with everything you could ever want, including the Lord himself. And then Genesis 3.6 says that Eve looked at the fruit and sees that it's pleasing to her eye. And the fall of humanity begins. See, for all that is in the world, our scripture says, the lusts of your flesh and the desires of your eyes, it's not from the Father It's from the world. Don't mix the two. Which really brings us to this third part part of uh, verse 16. John says, the love of worldly things eventually leads to a prideful life. A teacher, a young boy, and a professor were the only passengers on board a plane, except for the pilot, who yelled back in the cabin, the engines are out and we're going down he said, here's the problem. We only have three chutes and there's four of us. Someone's going down with this plane. The pilot said, I get one. This is my plane. I have a wife and kids at home. And so he grabbed his shoe and he jumped out the plane. The professor then stepped in. He said, well, I should have one too because I'm the smartest man in the world and everybody needs me. So he took his and jumped. The teacher turned to the young boy. He said, look, I've lived a good life. You're young, you take the last parachute, I'll go down with the plane. The little boy smiled back, he said, no, it's okay, there's one for each of us. The teacher said, how is that? The boy said, you know the smartest man in the world? He just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. (laughs) It doesn't get any better than that. Proverbs 16, 18 says this. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. I think, particularly around the holidays, we can easily find ourselves in this prideful game of comparison. Who in the family got the bigger Christmas bonus? Who got the highest promotion of the year? Who came with the latest and greatest toys? Who went on the best vacation? It's packed in our Christmas cards. Particularly stuff around this season is all about shopping. We start to believe that the more stuff, the newer stuff, the better stuff, it'll somehow lead to my fulfillment and happiness and joy. And it's not the stuff that's the problem. It's that we cling to it and make it a symbol of our self-worth. And yet all of it, even the desires of it, God's word says, is passing away. Jesus, on that famous Sermon on the Mount, remember he said this, do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth where... Moth and rust destroying where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Love this, not that. Which really brings us to the final verse today, verse 17, it says this here's where you should put your focus. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me ask you, what is the will of God? You know, we ask ourselves this question all the time. Is it, is it God's will for me to take that new job? Or is it God's will for me to marry that girl? Is it God's will for me to move? And here's how Jesus said it. Listen to this very carefully. He said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him would have eternal life. John 6.40. That's God's will for us. The rest is just details. To love God is to chase after that plan in Christ for us. But to love the world is to leave that plan behind. Paul says it like this in Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let me just paint a picture of what that might look like. Jermaine Bell had been waiting all year long for his seventh birthday. He and his grandma had saved $500, and they'd saved this $500 to spend the weekend celebrating at Disney World. But Jermaine's dreams were really put on hold because of this thing called a hurricane. Hurricane Dorian had begun spinning off the coast, and Disney had no choice but to shut its doors, and so Jermaine's birthday plans were ruined. And he could have waited a few weekends and gone another weekend. They lived nearby, but it was his birthday, and he wasn't going to let this rain in his parade. So he took the $500 that he and Grandma had saved all year long, and he bought hot dogs and chips and water for all those people stranded on the highways trying to leave their homes. And even when Jermaine's hopes and dreams were shattered, his love of the Father remained. See, to live for the Father while living for this world is like trying to mix oil and water. To love the one is to leave the other behind. But this is what we're taught this morning. Do not love this world or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life is not from him. It's from the world. And it's all passing away. But whoever does the will of God and lives for Christ abides forever. Let me pray for us as we step into communion together. Let me pray.